0: Psalm 24, I'm going to go ahead and read it, then we'll get into our study, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive blessings from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, Selah. If you recall, Selah is put there. These are songs. This is a musical uh, interlude for the purpose of contemplation, that you would contemplate what was just said. Verse seven, lifting up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up your everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. We've been looking at what I've chosen to entitle the Psalms of the Cross. The Psalms that we've been looking at are Psalm 22, Psalm 23, and obviously now Psalm 24. Psalm 24. We've seen how each of these three are tied together progressively as we looked in detail at Psalm 22, hundreds of years before the crucifixion. There's the crucifixion spelled out before crucifixion even came as a means of execution. And we saw the details of what was going on there. Last week, we saw the resurrection of the Lord and that the Lord was in that place of authority as he was governing over the affairs of his, of, of his saint. And now today, we're going to look at the ascension of Jesus Christ. In Psalm 22, we saw our dying Lord upon the cross and the relationship between him and the Father and the ideas during that time of darkness when we were kind of shut out. This gives us a picture. It brings us in to what was going on. But we saw in Psalm 23, he who was killed, he now lives. And we look at verse 1, a Psalm of David who is a former shepherd. He says, the Lord, or Yahweh, is my shepherd. Yahweh, the God who is, is the one who cares for me, and he is the one who watches out for me. The one who is, is our shepherd. He possesses all of the might, the power, and the glory of God for his purpose in us, for the purpose of creation, for the purpose of salvation, and the purpose of sanctification for you to live a godly life, you have available to you all of the resources of the Lord. Again, his might, power, and his glory for the purposes that God has called us to. And so again, consider where is it that God has called us? Well, if you're married, God has called you to that spouse and you have available to you the might, the power, and the glory of God for that purpose. If you're a parent, well, it's all about the might, the power, and the the glory of God for that purpose. As far as your job, Your job is God's provision to you. You have available to you the might, the power, and the glory of God. And so as we look at each area of calling within our lives here at church for the purpose of ministry, I have available to me the might, the power, and the glory of God. And we look at these things and we see we ought to be prevailing for every aspect of our lives. And the only reason that we wouldn't would be because of a lack of faith in God and what God is able to do because it's never about what we're able to do. Again, you have that picture of King David going down into that valley as he was shepherd David at the time and facing that giant. David knew, it. Hey, not about me. He's not down there blaspheming me. He's down there blaspheming the God of glory. And he understood that's an uncircumcised Philistine and all of these armies of Israel ought not to be stranded up here on this ridge they ought to be going down there and they ought to be moving forward because they have all the might the power and the glory of god behind them and unfortunately and it started at leadership king saul they didn't realize that but he did and as he did he went down and he achieved a great victory what giant in your life what is it that's bigger badder and uglier than you in your life ladies don't look at your husband but whatever it is that intimidates you, whatever it is that frightens you, God has not called us to a spirit of fear. God's saying, you have all of the might, the power, and the glory of myself behind you. Move forward in that which you know that I have called you to. So in tonight, in Psalm 24, we'll see this crucified shepherd who has ascended to the place of power and authority G. Campbell Morgan said he is the one who has passed through Psalm 22 and is exercising the office of Psalm 23 and is seen claiming the authority of Psalm 24 within our notes. Um, I said within our notes, I had a little thing side here, side note, uh, within our lives. A little side note though, it was Jewish tradition that tells us that Psalm 24 was used in worship on the first day of the week that would mean that this psalm would be read every single Sunday. Now you look at it in perspective of what we just celebrated Easter, it's very possible that this psalm was read as the Lord rode into Jerusalem riding upon that donkey. So as he did, the people are singing out Hosanna, save now, save now. But it's very possible within the temple that the priests were singing this song as was their habit. It would be very special that time, unbeknownst to at least some of them, anyway. So again, as the people were shouting in the streets, the people—I'm sorry—the priests were singing in the temple. What were they singing? Well, the psalm as a whole, but at least this part that would be very, very vivid picture of what was going on at the time. Verses nine and ten: "Lift up your heads!" Now again, picture this: as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem riding on that donkey in the midst of that sea of sheep. Again, we've looked at this before, but about 200,000 sheep without blemish. And there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And inside the temple, they're singing, Lift up your heads, O you gates, lift up your everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. dwell upon that. A couple of days later, both priests and people would shout, Crucify him, but we have the opportunity to honor and glorify him. Now we must understand the perspective of this psalm in order to understand what is being said here. When I speak of the ascension, I am not speaking of how the Lord ascended into heaven. He did, but that's not the point that this psalm is making. I'm speaking of the place of ascension. The place where he is to be praised in King David's life, praised during his day, but also praised in our lives as well. And King David's day? Well, probably, maybe this psalm was even written in response to what we see in Second Samuel chapter six. What was going on there? Remember, David. He was bringing the ark, the ark, the, the throne of God. He was bringing it into, into Jerusalem. And that was the time as it was being brought in that David was dancing before that procession. There was just an excitement that here we've now established Jerusalem as the capital of our nation and now God is entering into that. And here we have political and we have spiritual. We have it all together. How could we not prosper? And so there was just an excitement that David could not contain within himself. Remember his wife, Michal, she, it was Saul's daughter. She was the one who despised him, saying he made a fool of himself. But again, really what it was, it was just an outward expression of the praise of God based upon what God was doing. Then there was the day that he ascended, Jesus ascended into Jerusalem in fulfillment of the scriptures in Matthew chapter 21, the triumphal entry once again, that which had been prophesied from many years before, and now it was the fulfillment of it. Here's God truly, in a visible way, as Savior entering in. Entering in amongst his people because he would be the only hope that mankind would ever have. He's entering in really for the purpose of salvation, definitely, but for crucifixion, truthfully, that the Lord would enter in and he would, he would be crucified just a matter of days later. But then as far as us there's the day that he ascended into your heart and made that place his dwelling place. We can never forget, nor should we ever forget, the day of our salvation, the day when we received Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, as we submitted our life to him and he came and dwelt inside of us. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. And so as God dwells with inside of us, you should always have a remembrance. Just as David and as he danced, just as Christ, as he came in in glory to that, the, the city of Jerusalem, you should always have that remembrance of first love when Christ entered into your life. Do you remember that day? Do you remember that day? And do you remember how you felt? You should, to a degree anyway. I remember it. I can remember it pretty vividly as I was entering into something that was unknown but I had a contentment about it. I I understood that I was entering into Christ. And as I entered into him, he entered into me. I couldn't describe it in much more detail. But again, there was this, this relationship that I knew demanded the ultimate of commitment. But although I was willing to do that, I didn't know what it entailed. And so again, there was a bit of the fear, if you will, of the unknown, but as I entered in, as we enter into that relationship with Christ, as he enters into us, he fills our lives to overflowing. He guides us through every step of the way. He reassures us of the commitment that we have made based upon the commitment that he has made to us. And it was a day, it was a day again, I can remember it. It was a Sunday evening. It was after a, uh, second chronicles study if you can believe that and uh, again it was the day that i i committed my life to the lord so so who is christ who is in us well is what king david lays out for us here is he is the crea- creator of the cosmos verses one and two the earth is the lord's and all of its fullness the world and those who dwell therein For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. He is Lord of all creation. In the New Testament, it joins perfectly with the old in this reality. In Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The apostle John is wanting to write his gospel and prove the fact that Jesus Christ is God the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He states that in the first few verses. He states his theses, and then he goes throughout the rest of his gospel, proving that fact through the scriptures that are fulfilled and the miracles that Christ worked. But as he starts out, even in the first uh, verse in his theses, he ties the two together, Christ and, and Genesis chapter 1. Again, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the word. Well, if God was there, and again, he's tying it together, the word of God with God, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And Paul built upon that in Colossians chapter 1, verse 6. He says, for by him, for by Jesus Christ, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. The earth is the Lord's because from the beginning all the way through the end of the Bible, we see that he created it and he bled for it. He overcame the cross for it. He purchased it by his precious blood. We are the Lord's and that he created us and he purchased us the same way. He died for us in order to claim us. Verse 2, For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Once again, especially as we look at Old Testament scriptures and especially as we look at people of the Old Testament who are making references, and that's what David is doing, he's making reference to the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, never forget that the Bible that he is learning from is the Bible that you have on your lap. When you go to Israel, one of the places that they, they take you to is the area of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And you have the Dead Sea to one side and you have just kind of deserty to the other side. And there's a highway that goes down the middle and you drive down this highway and they tell you, OK, well, here's the place of the Dead Sea. And it's almost like you're just of uh, Dead Sea Scrolls. It's almost if like you're just pulling off the side of the road and there's just this area. They've done some excavations there. So we see that it was a place where people lived. But they'll tell you, well, there's the, the cave where the dead, and it's just a hole off the side of the road, maybe a couple hundred yards, that a shepherd was shepherding his sheep and saw it and threw a rock through it once and heard a vase crack. And it's just amazing that that was there for all of that time. But as they went in and they got the, the scrolls that were there, and as they've done their research, they're finding, especially the book of Isaiah in its totality is word for word. Some of these were a couple of hundred years, even before the time of Christ. These scrolls were written. The word of God endures forever and it never changes. And so we can rest assured that the same Bible that King David had is the same Bible that you have here tonight. So his Bible is the same, so that tells me that his Genesis is the same that we have. And as that's the case, that as David is looking back and he's getting wisdom from the Word of God in order to show us who God is, that we can glean the same thing. And Genesis, what he's referring to, let me read verse 2 again. For he has founded it, the earth, and... Oh, let's it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Well, I just wonder if that's a contemplation from Genesis chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, when God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so, and God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters he called seas and God saw that it was good. If you want to know the standard for a song book, a Hebrew songbook or God's psalm book, the psalms are the best place to look. But not just the verbiage that are in the psalms, but how the songs were developed. And here, chapter 24, is a song. This is in God's songbook. book. How was it developed? It was developed based upon the acts and the word of God. David is referred back to Genesis to see the count of creation. And as he's writing his song here, this expression of the love that he has for a God who has ascended to the place of his heart, he builds it upon the foundation, again, of God's word. So who is Christ? Well, who are you who Christ has come to? Verse 3. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord or who may stand in his holy place? As Jesus has gone to prepare a place for those, he has done so to prepare a place for those who have prepared a place for him. He have prepared a place for him, again, in our hearts. And so because of that, he has gone to prepare a place for us. A God such as our God would truly be unapproachable to the common man, understanding the glory of God, understanding the absolute purity of the Lord, understand the goodness of God and understand the depravity of man. Maybe we can't understand the depravity of all men and we've seen some things that are horrible that people are able to do, but just look at your own depravity. Look how you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so the question would be, He's, he's, he's singing about God coming in, coming into the city, coming into Jerusalem uh, on, on that day of the triumphal entry and coming into the believer's heart. Well, who is worthy of that? How, how can anyone have a relationship with such a holy being as our God is? And so the question, I guess, should be, which David is going to go to answer, what would be God's requirements for a place or a life that is truly prepared For him who may ascend into the hill of the Lord or who may stand in his holy place and so I just can once again picture David and I don't know when he wrote this in his life it doesn't really matter but as he's contemplating the glory of God and as he's contemplating the might of God he's contemplating the power of God and the creation of God he's thinking well who in the world could possibly be worthy and then God gives him that answer in which he relays to us verse 4 He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, who is worthy of a shepherd such as this. Well, David offers four qualifications. These are four qualifications that have been given to him by God. Now, we'll see what these things are predicated upon, and the lists that we have in the Bible are never meant to be all-inclusive, but just generalities that we would be able to make an evaluation of ourselves in the reality knowing that we're with God. And so those four qualifications are clean hands, a pure heart, one who is not an idolater, and he who is not a deceiver. So we must understand what these mean. What does it mean to have clean hands? This is somebody who practices a biblical perspective of what an outward holiness is. This hands are your works, and so are my works clean in the sight of God? This is one, we're going to see this concept of as we study uh, this coming Sunday, we're going to be starting studies in 1 John. But John speaks of this concept throughout his epistle of one who works at a condition that is acceptable to God a condition that is acceptable to God, and it can only be based upon a relationship with God. My works don't save me. I'm saved. I'll be producing works. And so the idea is, is the fruit of a Christian life. Am I exhibiting the fruit of a Christian life? Do I have clean hands? Are, are my works that which are geared towards giving God glory? Am I putting my might, my time, my effort, my resources into honoring God who has blessed me with his presence in my life? In 1 John chapter 2 verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Again, practicing righteousness who works at a condition that is acceptable to God. Again, I know the only way that I'm acceptable to God is through my relationship with Jesus Christ, but I can have a relationship with Jesus Christ and disqualify myself from the blessings of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to be honorable before the Lord. The great work that God has done to to my life to bring me into a relationship with him, I want my life to be a reflection of that. We're all going to fall short, But is that your intent? Do you have a pure heart before the Lord in order to be, well, just just acceptable to Him, just to be obedient to what His call is in your life? You can look at it from the negative standpoint and the one who did not have clean hands. In Matthew 27, verses 24 through 25, it says, When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be upon us and our children. And so Pilate thinks that he's passing the baton here, but if you could talk to Pilate at this time, he'd say, hey, Pontius, <laughs> that was his first name. It's really a title. Hey, Pontius, check out your hands. They didn't really get clean. You tried worldly means. You tried just to, to, to pass it on. Yeah, the, 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 they are guilty over there. The, the blood of Christ is on their hands. But if you notice, the blood of Christ is still on your hands as well. And so where were my hands clean, my works made acceptable to God? Not when they were washed by any worldly means, but when they were washed clean by the blood of the Lord. Yeah, Jesus died for me and I'm culpable in his death. There's no doubt about it. But it was because of faith in him and what he has done that he has cleansed my hands or he has made my works acceptable in the sight of God. And so since I've got these hands that are cleansed, these works that are honorable before him, am I actually doing that? Am I giving God the works of my salvation? And think of it this way, works is work. Again, I've been saved by grace. But as far as work, it speaks of sweat of the brow. It speaks of effort. It speaks of obedience to a Lord. Am my works honorable before him? Pilate and the Jews did not have clean hands. Their hands were stained with the blood of Christ. But those who were in Christ, Christ is in them, and their works have been made clean. So that's number one. Prayerfully, you'll be able to check that off. Do you have a pure heart? Secondly, what does it mean to have a pure heart? Well, you can fake, number one, but our heart is naked before the Lord. Your heart's not the thing inside your chest that is going boom, boom, Your heart is that which is the inner person. It's that whom only you know and God knows. And sometimes you'll even lie to yourself and give a false representation of who you are to yourself. But God knows exactly who you are. A person with a pure heart has no selfish, ulterior, or worldly motives. His desire are for the Lord and the things of the Lord. Probably the best example in the book of Acts, Ananias and Barnabas. Barnabas was a man who had had some riches, and he understood the magnitude of what Christ has done for him. And so what did he do? He went and sold it all because he understood the purpose for the church, and he understood that men and women needed to hear what the church had to offer and he's got this pure heart before God. And, and, and it's not that you, you have to go and sell everything and give it to God, but he understood that this came from God and I'm dedicating my life to God. So here, here it all is, take it. And I can imagine, and I don't, Barnabas did not do it for this reason or he would not have a pure heart, but people were thinking, man, that's impressive that God would have that kind of impact upon a person that they would do such a thing. And Ananias kind of saw some of that praise and wanted some of the praise for himself goes you know what I'll do the same thing but I don't know if I want to give it all to God and so he sold everything he said he gave it all to the Lord you know the story he kept back some of it and because of that well God understood where his heart was in the matter and he paid the price for it to have a pure heart is to have an inward honesty that is revealed through outward integrity It's to have that inward honesty between you and yourself, once again, knowing that you are open before the Lord, but you express it through an outward integrity, that I'm going to live my life according to God's will, according to God's way. Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And again, the only way that you can have a pure heart is is through a right relationship with Jesus Christ. But obviously, this is saying that we need to have it, so I've got some responsibility in this as well. Not for salvation, but because of salvation. What does it mean, thirdly, what does it mean to not lift our soul to an idol? We can be of the confusion that, for the most part, idolatry doesn't exist, but it does. Matter of fact, in our day, it even runs rampant. This is to not give yourself to not give yourself the service and dedication, to not give to yourself the service and dedication that is due to God or give it to something or anything else that is not of the Lord. And so idolatry could be that whichever it is that you worship whatever it is that you give your time and resources to. Now, we'll give our time and resources to a lot of things, and that doesn't necessarily make it idolatry, but it does when I put those things in a higher priority in giving of my time and my resources to God. And so I've got to balance these things out. Am I giving God his due? Am I giving God the things that he has asked of me as far as my efforts and my resources? and I have to make sure that that's a priority, because if you look at your time, your resources, just the things that are important in your life, to that which is important, you'll pour those things into. Where does God fit in all of that? We truly need to consider. In Luke chapter 16, verse 13, it says, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is just simply that which is opposed to God. And so we'll so think of idols, of bowing down to them, but how do we bow down? Once again, pouring time and resources into, well, where do you pour time and resources into? Where do your allegiances lay? What worship is what you will dedicate your life to? Fourthly, what does it mean to not swear deceitfully? Now, before I get into this, just think of the importance that God puts on the truthfulness of our word. The truthfulness of God's word is of the utmost importance. Matter of fact, the integrity of his word is that which is highlighted throughout the scriptures. He said in Psalm 139, I will honor my word even above my name because it's by the word of God that his heart is communicated to mankind. And so as he puts such a high priority on the purity of his, the word of his mouth, ought we not to put a high priority on the words of our mouth? This means to be a person of integrity in all things, that your yes may be yes and your no may be no. The idea is to have a right relationship with others through the things that you speak. Not to be deceptive, not to fool or, or, or um, take advantage of somebody, to, but, but to be perfectly honest and to express that honesty to them. In my relationship with my wife, my words betray my feelings towards her. My words to my children, my words to my grandchildren, they express the feelings that I have for them. I can express these through actions without a doubt, but at some point they have to be expressed through words as well. In First John chapter 4, verse 20, it says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For who does not love his brother whom he has seen? How can he love God whom he has not seen? We know the only way that these things can be accomplished is by a right relationship with Jesus Christ and a filling of the Holy Spirit, but it also takes the work of our souls to see that these things are fulfilled. Verse 5 He shall receive, this person shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. And so, really, this is the confirmation of verse 4 and the answer to verse 3. Again, verse 3, "...who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place? He who has a clean heart and a pure, or clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. He, this person, he shall be confirmed. He shall receive blessings from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation." This is the type of person whom, when entering the throne room of God, will not receive judgment but the unmerited favor of the Lord. And so he receives blessings from the Lord. Remember blessings? Blessings are God doing well for us, us blessing the Lord, or us speaking well of the things that God has done. And so. God doing well for us, God watching over our life, God keeping us, God hearing our prayer, God answering our prayer. You know what the blessings of the Lord are. Again, verse five, he shall receive blessings from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Righteousness is the holiness of Christ that has been placed upon us. It's rightness before God. Are we right in God's sight? Philippians 3, 9, to be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. And the idea is that white linen or that perfect purity of the Lord that is upon us. Verse 6, This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, Selah. Jacob, remember the heel catcher? But he is the one who, that time when he was once again trying to manipulate a situation that God... Well, he asked God to bless him, and so God did bless him by knocking his hip out of joint. And because of that, his plan was to run away rather than to trust in God. And he had to depend upon the Lord. And it's there that he learned a lesson that he wasn't so much a Jacob anymore, but an Israel. Israel literally means governed by God. He was then going to be a man who was going to be governed by the Lord. Verse 7. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates, lift up your everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts, Yahweh of hosts, for he is the King of glory, Selah. Again, there's that picture of the ark coming into the tabernacle. Christ coming into Jerusalem and Jesus coming into your life. If you open the gates, he'll come in. The gates that we open, the gates that we open are the faith that we have in him. What happens when you open the gates? The King of Glory will come in. He will make your hands, your works as white as snow. He'll give you a new heart that is pliable in his sight. He will be the Lord of your life and nobody else will be able to take that place and he will drive a love of others to a higher priority than the fruitless love of yourself. He'll bring you into a family, and he'll care for you through that family. He'll use you to bring more people into that family and that right relationship with him. He'll use the trials of your life to display what he does in one whose life is sold out for him. He'll he'll pour blessings upon you that will cause others to wonder And most of all, the righteousness of Christ will dwell upon you or rest upon you. And as that is the case, God fills us to overflowing. And even as David writes, Selah, at the end of this, we need to contemplate that. We need to contemplate that every person who hears this in relationship to the relationship, in relationship to the relationship that God has with you and what God has done and what God is waiting to do. Lord, cleanse my hands. Lord, purify my heart, even to a greater degree. Lord, may nothing else take the attention that is due to you. And Lord, I pray that your righteousness would forever be upon me. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. And really, that should be the theme of every Bible study we ever give. Because what is Jesus doing through his word? He's constantly, he's knocking on our hearts. doesn't matter how long you've been saved, he's constantly knocking on the heart. That that door that you've opened at some point, you would open it even wider. And Christ, as he has come in with us, that we would truly understand the intimate fellowship, the magnitude of the intimate fellowship that we are able to have with him. David's writing these things. Again, they're based upon the Spirit speaking to him, but also the Word of God and putting these things together, his experience with what God has done. And really what you see here is, is his praise overflowing. His praise didn't just overflow onto a page, but his praise overflowed throughout the ages and really throughout eternity. We've got that same opportunity because David is a man just like we are. He's a human being just like we are. And although he's made the Bible, you won't make the Bible, but you'll be able to influence others as well as we embrace these things and hold on to these things. Father, once again, we just thank you, God, that you have given us your word. And as you have given us your word, I just pray, Father, that we would embrace it, that we would make it, Lord, personal. And I pray, Father, that we would digest these things. And Father, that they would be manifest through the life that we live. And so, Father, just enable us to live a life, Father, that that others would look upon and and see you in our lives. And so, Father, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you, Lord, for the knowledge of your presence through your word. And just pray, Father, that we would be people worthy of your blessings. I lift up those whom we prayed for earlier tonight, do a work in their lives. I pray for those who are out tonight. I pray that you would go before them, that we would travel safely. And, God, we would just give you the glory throughout all of our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.